0: This is the fundamental thing that, that impacted us, uh, me as a mediator, that people actually had better answers to their lives than anybody from the outside ever could.
1: The Center for Understanding and Conflict welcomes you to The Other Chair, a show that explores the dynamics of conflict. Why do we double down in our position? Together with our guests, we explore how the power of understanding one another can lead to better solutions. We will also share tips for managing your own mediation practice.
2: Hi, my name is Fuang Ertley. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. I've been doing this work for 21 years. I'm also the founder of Mindful Living Incorporated. We're a um, therapy center that specializes in um, the concerns of people of color regarding their mental health, including systemic oppression and trauma healing so my interest in this podcast is about how to have courageous conversations and hopefully we'll have discussions around race as well as um, legal matters and um, finding our way through difficult times when we are in relationship What I offer to this program is just very practical tools about how to take care of ourselves and our mental health as we move through this difficult process.
1: I am Jennifer Sullivan. I am a lawyer and a mediator in Boulder, Colorado. I also work at the University of Colorado Law School. And I've been trying cases for a little over 20 years and mediating for about four years. I got introduced to mediation mainly through a training program that I took through uh, Harvard Law School's program on negotiation, where Gary Friedman was a teacher. And I have been an avid, maybe obsessive follower of the Center for Understanding and Conflict ever since. Uh, taking that training from Gary for me it was really like having the lights turned on on my legal career and helped me to see what had made me a little bit uncomfortable about my role as a litigator, which was that oftentimes I felt like even when I was doing a great job for my clients, I was assisting in something that didn't necessarily serve them. And that was that we were creating a different reality with our litigation case that didn't take into account the context in which this dispute had arisen and sometimes foreclosed options to resolve it that might have otherwise been available. So I really am interested in this idea that in mediation of disputes, of of any kind of conflict, but especially legal disputes, if you can lean into that conflict and you can actually lean into emotions, Oftentimes you can discover things about the conflict and about what's really important to these parties that you might not otherwise get to as part of a formal legal process. I'm really excited to talk about these issues on this podcast.
2: Hi, this is Phuong Ertli, co-host of The Other Chair. In our very first episode, we will discover the origin story of the mediation practice. What happens when you turn your back on your family, tradition, and even the practice of law itself. Follow Gary Friedman, the founder of this model, and his journey from his New England law firm to California in the 1970s. California at that time was deep in the throes of the revolutionary peace and love movement, as well as the humanistic educational psychology movement. As with any hero's journey, Gary's path was fraught with tears, tumult, and even the influences of a cult. In this episode, we explore how the idea of unconditional positive regard and the profound belief that people held the keys to their own lives changed Gary's personal life, as well as helped him forge the very foundations that would become the understanding in conflict model. So Gary, thank you so much for being with us today at the other chair. Um, and it's based on the um, understanding and conflict model. And for our listeners, could you please just succinctly explain what that model is and why it's so important and why we have a whole organization built around it?
0: Yeah, thanks. Um, well, first, I'm just really glad to be doing this. This is really kind of wonderful as I'm getting to be older. It's wonderful to feel like there are things that I can kind of look back on and understand from a different perspective perspective and and so uh, yeah so understanding we picked that word um, as the most central word and we call it the understanding model. The reason we did that is we thought that that was although that doesn't describe everything about the model it, it certainly captures um, the most significant and uh, profound part of what we think can be the most useful tool and helping people resolve conflict. And so understanding uh, just seemed like, uh, of all the different pieces of it, um, if everything else went by the boards, if we had understanding, that could really help, and that could actually create kind of fundamental uh, change and and help people um, when they're disagreeing with each other. Uh, So the understanding, of course, uh, is a different... Has a, a peculiar kind of power uh, that's different than the ordinary power that people think that they have, uh, or they want to have, when they're uh, in conflict. Because what comes naturally to people is um, using the power of coercion, using the power of pressure, using the power of threat, uh, whatever it is that we can do to, to try to force other people to change. And, of course, what we understand is from that, that often escalates disputes or leaves people stuck. Understanding has a whole other kind of uh, potential, which is if we can really understand, even when we disagree, it's possible that that expands, uh, understands something new, that, that, that expands the possibilities for creating a foundation for uh, resolving a dispute. So understanding is, and Mm -hmm. and there are really three kinds of understanding that we uh, think of. Mm -hmm. The first is um, understanding, if you're going to resolve a dispute, understanding the other person uh, is really quite useful because if you're going to have a consensual outcome, it's really quite useful and, and actually essential to understand their perspective. Um, the second, and this might sound a little funny, is understanding yourself. Um, and, and what we, uh, you know, people would just kind of naturally say, well, of course I understand myself. But, but that's not the way it is with conflict. With conflict, what happens is we're often just kind of thrown into it and we find ourselves reacting to others. And we really haven't thought through what is it that we really care about. Um, underlying this dispute? What's really important to us? What's really at the core of, uh, of all this? And so uh, understanding more deeply what we care about underlying the dispute is the second prong. And then the third prong is um, uh, the external realities. It's not just you and me. It's whatever else needs to be taken into account. If we can find a way uh, to expand our understanding of that, that will also be helpful. So those three prongs sit there uh, as resources for us to actually be able to find a basis to resolve a dispute.
2: So the context in which you're talking about resolving disputes, Gary, are you talking about a courtroom? Or are you talking about uh, something happening between parents that want separation? Are you talking about between neighbors? What's the context of that, that you're picturing this?
0: Everything. Um, uh, there's no there's no dispute that I can imagine that people could have if they were interested in it where where understanding wouldn't be helpful to them and at least uh, help them take a step toward resolving the dispute so it's the same whether it's countries uh, warring with each other families within families uh, neighbors um, legal disputes uh, commercial disputes just about everything uh that that where there are differences between the sides and um, and and the understanding is a is a kind of bridge that could actually help them uh whatever the whatever the in, in even large groups small groups individuals um it, it actually it actually even <laughs> um, disputes within, inside ourselves. (laughs) Um, You know, uh, we often have different reactions internally to people. And so we have, we feel conflicted sometimes inside. And so really actually understanding our internal conflicts also uh, can be quite uh, useful.
1: Gary, I wonder if we could um, take you back a bit um, for people who are listening who might not know the history of Um, not just the Center for Understanding and Conflict, but kind of going back to the roots of of the beginnings of mediation, which you were a part of. um, Could you talk a little bit about how you found your way to it, um, to this concept of of helping parties resolve disputes?
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't know whether I should give you the five-minute version or the... Five-hour version. <laughs> Somewhere
1: in between. <laughs> right.
0: Um, so you'll stop me at various points saying, you know, enough. Uh, so because it really does go back, uh, it really, actually, it goes back to my childhood. Um, and I don't think we want to go there uh, around all of this. But I think probably the, the, the fair place to start um, is my experience as a trial lawyer. Um, and, 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 uh, and my experience as a trial lawyer was, um, you know, I was, I was kind of bred to be a, t- a trial lawyer and, and, in my family and my, my father and my uncle, I was in their firm and, and the defining story of our, um, of my childhood, uh, was the case of Joseph Spell. Um, and Joseph Spell was, a, a um, a black man who was a chauffeur who was arrested uh, and charged with raping his um, uh, boss, who was a Greenwich uh, white woman. Uh, and uh, and my father and uncle, uh, through the um, uh, Civil Liberty ACLU, um, volunteered to represent him because nobody else would. And uh, and it turns out that the ACLU sent their their guy to sit in with them, and and that was Thurgood Marshall. And so, um, the, with an all-white jury, this uh, uh, Joseph Spell was found not guilty. Uh, and of course, it mm-hmm. made my whole um, father and uncle's career, and there's a movie that's been made out of it now, and it's uh, uh, it's called Marshall. And so. Um, that was the story we grew
2: up with. So, Gary, what, 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 can you take us to the time and place? Where were you? What year was this? Because this is very significant. Yeah,
0: 1941 is when uh, the trial was. So, there it was during the war, um, a few years before yeah. I was born. Um,
2: right, and well before
0: the Civil Rights Movement. Yes, right. Oh, yes. And in and, 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 uh, and Connecticut. Uh, and mm-hmm. so uh, it was. You know, there were um, there were. I don't think even in the juror pool there were any people of color. Um, so there was. Mm-hmm. They had no, no choice but to have an all white jury. And the and the four lady was a, a white woman from Virginia. So it was shocking and it made national news um, to have this guy um, because they he, they had to prove essentially she was lying. Um, and uh, so anyhow. That was it. That was my idea of being a lawyer. You fight for the underdog. You have people that are wrongly accused and and, and justice comes. Um, and that's what I had as my kind of idea of this is what lawyers do. This is how every case would be. And, of course, the reality was when I started to practice law, it wasn't quite like that. And as a matter of fact, I felt there were a lot of things about uh, being a trial lawyer that just didn't feel right to me in terms of my own uh, inclinations and my own understanding of disputes because uh, especially when I was on one side and kind of hired to poke holes in what was wrong with what the other side was saying and to kind of act as if my side was entirely right, um, that was Mm -hmm. uh, extremely, it just didn't fit the situations, and so I had to kind of change myself in terms of my attitude and become very aggressive. And I was. Um, I got really good at being aggressive. But it didn't feel true. Um, and I would often feel at the end of a case um, th- that everybody was a kind of unhappy. Uh, and I was unhappy that even when I won, it was a very short lived feeling. Um, to feel like, oh, gee, we were vindicated. And and the power that I had to cross-examine just seemed, uh, I was kind of stunned by that, that you could actually make somebody who was apparently telling the truth appear to be um, not telling the truth or or not getting it it right. So this um, ate at me. It actually uh, impacted how I was, not just actually as a lawyer, but even at home. Uh, and with friends. Um, And and the parts of my personality, and there were plenty of them, that loved aggression and fighting and winning and uh, very competitive, um, got kind of exaggerated by my uh, work as a a trial lawyer. And I didn't like what was happening to me. Uh, So I stopped, Um, actually, just at the moment when my father and uncle had decided that I would become managing partner of the firm. Because um, I realized that if I did that, I was going to be there for life.
1: So you realized that you were at kind of a um, point at which it was going to be, you were going to fully commit to this or you were going to do something entirely different?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, it, it wasn't was as so if I didn't feel fully committed, committed to it already. Right. But, but as the growing uh, discomfort uh, I, as I was dealing yeah. with that... I, uh, when when th- this was kind of a seminal moment you're going to now be be uh, uh, running this firm and there were all the other lawyers who were much older than i was and i just felt like oh this is the moment you've got to make some kind of decision so i decided to quit which was extremely a uh, heavy blow to mm-hmm. my father particularly
2: so gary could is it okay if I kind of distill what you just said please a moment, so i can understand. I understand
0: yes this no, is you're practicing like, the understanding model
2: yeah. <laughs> that well the this the story of joseph spellman is that his spell name? spell spell joseph spell um galvanized you or inspired you to fight for the underdog it, it just seemed like it really moved you in a certain way to to dedicate your life towards this sort of, um, mission. And, and it seems like as you realized your ambitions to fight for the underdog, it seemed like over time, you didn't like the, the act of fighting itself. That the means in which you achieved your goal was fighting and that didn't sit well with you.
0: I mean, in some ways, I liked it too much, uh, the fighting, Mm -hmm. Um, that you know, it was like when, once once in and doing it, I was good at it. I was in it. Um, it was only when I would kind of step back that I would say, "Is this really how you think you, that this is you're making the world a better place?" Um, mm-hmm, and how mm-hmm. how is this actually making life better for the people you're working with and and for you? And and there weren't good answers
1: mm-hmm. to that. And can I can I
2: just dig in on oh. Yeah, go ahead. Go oh, ahead. No. Uh, I I just wanted to just there was some there's something very significant about the means and the ends because it yeah. seems like your aspiration was coming from this pure place of I want to help, I want to better the world. And and yet the means in which you did it was adversarial, it was aggressive, and even though there's a part of you that liked it, it didn't quite go in alignment with that aspiration to make the world a better place. There was some sort of incongruency there that I think of as like the grain in the oyster, right? There's just something there that irritated you.
0: Yeah, it was more than irritating. I mean, there's something about it that felt kind of profoundly wrong. Um, I mean, not always. You know, for Joseph Spell, it was profoundly right. Uh, And for some other cases, too. But f- far too many, it was felt like the, the, the gulf between people that, be, that was there at the beginning of a trial would, be, would actually increase with mm. the determination that one was right and the other was wrong. And that just felt like a framework that uh, didn't actually fit the reality as I understood it. And, and we were all kind of pretending, yes, this is the reality. Somebody was determined to be the winner. Somebody determined to be the loser. Um, and we all go on with our lives with that kind of mark. But what does that mean in terms of the relations between people? Didn't help.
1: And can we just talk about that for a second, Gary? Because so many people are, uh, so many lawyers are attracted to your center's uh, programming and teachings. And I think what you're talking about here is a big part of the reason why. Uh, because you were talking about this role that you're required to take as a lawyer where you're a zealous advocate and that you felt uncomfortable stepping fully into that role all the time because while sometimes it serves the ends of justice, other times it creates its own reality. Is that fair to say?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: And, and you know, I
0: mean, it, it, at first it was... Um, and I don't want to say the adversary system is wrong. As a matter of fact, I think the adversary system for the people, for whom the adversary system fits, is terrific, um, because it can, at best, level the playing field between people that are, you know, have disparate uh, amounts of power. Especially if you have, you know, a, a powerful lawyer representing somebody who's one down, this can actually make things uh, better. So I don't want to turn this into just a critique of the adversary system is bad. That's not that's not right. Um, it just it didn't fit for me, and it didn't fit for a lot of the people that I was trying to help. And uh, and and I was helpless once in the role to do anything about that. It wasn't <laughs> uh, you know. So I would often find myself kind of struggling with, do I do this or do I not do this? I, doing this will actually help my client, but. It doesn't actually feel particularly right.
1: Yeah, and I want to talk more about that later. I think we will because I've definitely heard you talk a lot about how important the lawyer's role is in a in a successful mediation process when people do come in with attorneys. Um, but we, you know, we got to the point where you were deciding that this wasn't uh, wasn't the thing that you wanted to continue to do. Um, so can you talk about what you did at
0: that point? Yeah, I mean, you know, my whole life, of course, was in turmoil <laughs> uh, with this decision. Mm-hmm. It was really like a tsunami to the, to the family and the relationship of my father. And I also um, uh, decided at that time to get a divorce. Um, so, um, you know, with the leaving of the firm, I had also spent a year before I became a lawyer... I'd spent a year in California after I'd graduated from law school, um, teaching uh, in Southern California, and I had this idea of teaching um, high school kids uh, to uh, about law, with the hope that that would actually be helpful because that was that was in '69 and '70 was with the height of the fight against you know the Vietnam War and. Um, and so I worked with these kids in this um, uh, very rich private school um, and put them together with kids from uh, high school who were all um, much lower rung in terms of uh, money and, 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 um, and, and, and class. And um, uh, it was an incredible year for me to be able to spend this year teaching these kids um and feeling like and of course living in California at that time um, the, the the lights went on <laughs> um, about a possible what what life could be like for me personally and also um, I was very excited about being able to be part of a transformation uh, of these kids um, as a matter of fact of the kids that I was teaching in the high school in the private school um, a third of the class went on to become lawyers, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, um, which was really disproportionate. But but it, it was uh, so anyhow. I had that there in my background about how life could be, and so when I was so when I quit, it was let's go back to California. That's where you experienced an expansiveness that was really kind of amazing, um, and uh, I, I did that. Uh, uh, that was the first uh, thought that I'd had. I'd been thinking when I left California, I will come back. Uh, I'll go practice law for a year and so and then because I felt obligated to do that. But I'm coming back because I felt like there was something there for me that had mm-hmm. to do with, um, uh, uh, you know, a more expansive kind of life.
1: Yeah. Was that in the Bay Area?
0: No, that was in Southern California, uh, in Hollywood. I lived on the beach, Venice Beach. Wow. A little shack on the beach.
1: And can you just tell us what what did you teach them about the law that made so many of them want to become
0: lawyers? <laughs> yeah, no, it was really it, you know it was interesting because the first I know you know I was uh, from the East Coast I came in with a suit on um, and all these kids looked at me and it was like I was you know, obviously uh, some uh, jerk um, and I and and so uh, I. I took, I, I, my idea was to take my criminal procedure book from law school and, and, and teach, which was so alive with the people's stories and teach that to these kids. And I had this idea of actually, uh, they were in police cars, um, and, you know, and I had a very strong political leaning, you know, that, that there were a lot of things that were really wrong with, uh, with America, um, and, and so uh, there was this, especially this underdog feeling, that was a really big deal. And so uh, the kids had that, that uh, feeling too. And of course, but what I didn't know, when I, it happened to me the first day of class, um, uh, one of the students, I was teaching this case that were, was actually involved rape. And um, one of the students said, well, why would there be any laws against rape Wow um and it was huh <laughs> think that through had, had I ever thought about that actually not really uh, so I was challenged every bit of the way uh, with these really smart kids mm-hmm. um, and I said at the I remember saying this at the end of the first class well whatever whatever I had in mind for what I was going to be teaching you this year you um, uh, I'm sure I was completely misguided. So the way this class is going to work, the only way it can work is if we do this together, um, that uh, I find out I think through a lot of things I haven't thought through. You're going to help me do that. And I just hope you'll think through things mm-hmm. that you haven't thought through. And so that was where the year came from, This uh, spirit of real uh, being, being together with these um, kids in 12th grade and 11th grade and 9th grade. Um, and so it was very, very exciting for me.
2: Well, that sounds truly transformative, Gary, both for the, the kids and for you. because yeah. I, I picture that um, learning uh, in those days was very top down, meaning you yes. were the expert, you held the knowledge and you would pour it on your your students and they would be uh, vessels to receive and it sounded like that's not at all what happened that right. there was this collaborative feeling there was a back and forth and it, i don't know what inspired you but it seemed like you stepped down from that pedestal and really asked them to consider collaborating with
0: well me. it was survival <laughs> um you know uh, uh um, actually the school was very oriented in that way uh mm-hmm. So I I remember the orientation that we got was there's a guy, a very famous um, Jungian uh, psychologist named Harold Stone. Uh, And uh, he did the orientation of the new teachers. And he started the orientation with um, uh, playing us the song Suzanne by Leonard Cohen. Um, Mm -hmm. And he said, do you want to understand these kids these days? Listen to this song. And he took, the, we spent about three or four hours to, he, picking that song apart. And it was just absolutely mind-blowing to me um, mm-hmm. to actually engage at, at that level of understanding of what kids are going through and uh, what life was about. And so, yes, it was, I had tremendous support for this rather revolutionary mm-hmm. a feeling that we all had. Mm,
2: so you were surrounded by like-minded people.
0: Yeah, so I mean, the best teachers I've ever seen in my life. You know, uh, there was a a woman teaching history who became a really close friend of mine. And um, uh, the name, of, and she taught uh, 17th century literature, um, and it was um, something about um, uh, Christ, you know, and ain't easy uh, was the title of the course. Um, yeah. And she took all these kids back into the, the into the 17th century and brought that so alive um so anyhow i can go on but probably you don't want me to
1: (laughs) well it's interesting i mean that's what um fung just said about the way that you taught i think is really striking to me because i was sitting here thinking about the fact that i think one thing that probably makes you a great mediator certainly makes you a great teacher is your ability and willingness to be led by or at least be open to responding to the people in the room rather than feeling the need to control what's happening in the room Um, do you think that's always been part of your makeup
0: interesting Um, no I mean my education was always you know as uh, Fong says top down Um, uh, with very few glimpses (laughs) of anything different than that um I think it was just kind of in me, and some of it was, I think, uh, fair enough, fair, uh, you know, maybe a reaction to um, my father being rather authoritarian, mm-hmm. um, that I never felt like that was a very productive way for people to talk to each other. <laughs> I mean, I, we, we, yeah, talk, I mean, we loved each other, and that was always true, but um, the conversations were always this kind of... You know, power-driven conversations, and i I, I felt like I didn't—I didn't even when I was really little. I didn't—I didn't know why. I just knew that that didn't feel very complete. It didn't feel full. um, The conversations. There was always seemed like there was more. And the right wrong framework was so strong in all of those conversations, all of them that it was like, that's the point. And it never seemed to me that it, it addressed the reality enough of what mm-hmm. was going on.
1: Yeah,
2: mm-hmm. um, I, I'm just, again, I, I think time and place is so important. I mean, you mentioned the, the Vietnam protests, and you know, I'm just picturing a time where there were many like you who grew up in authoritarian or very um, kind of pedigreed, sort of families finding an, an alternative and during that time people were having things like teach-ins you know having like each one teach one and sitting around in circles and you know doing psychedelics together and there, there, there seems to be at that time this blossoming of people trying different ways and wanting to to be in more egalitarian structures so California, sounds very significant in your journey because you met people who allowed those things to happen, that it wasn't just um, this feeling that life could be different, but you got to experience life being different.
0: Exactly. Yeah, no, that's right. And, you know, and and it was music um, and just understanding of life that comes from music, and it was a very fertile scene. Um, I got to know some of these rather um, well-known people people in the, in the, and of course there was marijuana. Um, and, Mm -hmm. um, I'd never done that before. Um, and of course it was every place. And, uh, I mean, it was some, it was also kind of out of control in some ways. Teachers Mm -hmm. sometimes came into class stoned. (laughs) Um, students were living with teachers. I mean, it was really, there, there were almost like no rules, um, and uh, so it was a time of incredible ferment. They closed the school down um, to protest the Vietnam War on a, on, a, on a couple of days. And at the same time, there were there were people coming into the school so fertile and very challenging of people. Um, Alex Haley was uh, uh, very close to some mm-hmm. of the parents and, and he it was just he hadn't uh, he was just writing roots. and he came in and he spoke mm-hmm. to the whole school about roots. And it was, you know, it was like day after day, there were kind of incredible things that are, that we were learning and understanding.
2: Wow. And who are some of those musical influences? You want to drop some names?
0: <laughs> yeah, well, of course, Joni Mitchell, and um, and uh, there was a, a place called McCabe's. It's still there, I think, in 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 Los, in, um, uh, Los Angeles. Um, we used to go there all the time, and um, uh, there were you know all of those people of. Um, the late '60s, Jackson Brown, Linda Ronstadt. Um, there were uh, actually the history teacher was her road manager. <laughs> um, uh, so there, and it was pre Jerry Brown times. Um, so uh, there were, you know, all of those, and they were, of course, they were hanging out with each other, and they were hanging out with with us, and we with them, and it was uh, it was just kind of uh, amazing. And, you know, I'm not going to say it was all good. Uh, It was incredibly challenging and enormous um, uh, for a kid from, you know, New England, um, growing up in a very kind of straight family. To have that uh, be exposed to really different ideas was just amazing.
1: So when you realized that you wanted to break free then from... Uh, where you'd grown up and the law firm that you, you know, could have spent your future in, probably a, a lucrative future, um, and also your, your marriage. Uh, it sounded like California, you'd had this, this experience there, and that was the natural place to return to. Well, of
0: course, there was another piece of it, which was um, uh, in 1972 or 3, I think, uh, I met Trish, my wife, now my wife. Um, and that was through Planned Parenthood, um, where I was, um, chairman of the board, uh, of Planned Parenthood for some reason that had nothing to do with my knowing anything about their work, but they wanted a young lawyer, um, to, uh, and mostly it was this older, uh, white women, uh, who wanted, um, you know, me to do that. And, um, And a lot of them were my mother's friends, Um, and so. uh, But when I, uh, we needed to to have a director, and so um, Trish was one of the applicants, and I met her, and I was like, "Oh my goodness!" (laughs) Um, My life was turned upside down, and she had these ideas um, that came. Actually, uh, one of them came from she was connected to a guy named Danilo Dolce who was an an Italian who was actually trying to create a whole revolution in Italy in terms of more egalitarian relations. And and she had a vision for what Planned Parenthood could be. And it meant that these uh, older white women weren't the the best people to deal with inner-city problems. We were in Bridgeport, Connecticut, um, and we needed people from the community um, that were actually the, the people that went to the clinics and the... Um, and uh, and organizers and political people and so um, so together we created this task force uh, it was really her idea but I thought it was terrific um, I, and we' both had a California background she'd gone to to college out here um, and so we created this task force and the task force was composed of all all people that were really... Um, the people that really, the, the communities, um, they were people of color, they were people of influence, they were people of credibility, they were people that understood what was happening in the community. Um, and so uh, we, the task force actually became the de facto board because they would do the real work and then we would bring the recommendations of the task force to the, um, the women uh, on the board and they would just rubber stamp it um, uh, because they 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 were just interested in being with each other and not didn't really see Planned Parenthood as a kind of having a political anything, uh, but the task force did, and so that's where and that became actually a model that got used beyond uh, our little local organization and went kind of statewide, and we had uh, people that were really interested in from what was called, which was H-E-W, the Health Education and Welfare, um, and they and they got very excited about what we were doing, bringing these uh, people who had been kind of disenfranchised into decision-making mm-hmm. uh, a power to actually uh, make these decisions about what would happen with Planned Parenthood and be more relevant. Was H-E-W part of
1: Planned Parenthood? or No, Parenthood?
0: H-E-W was, uh, it was I guess... That's the Department of Health now. I mean, so it was, I, I think they, that, uh, no, they, but they were funding it. So anyhow, um, as we became, you know, more of a team, um, and also fell in love, um, when I decided to quit, um, I decided I was moving to California. Um, and, uh, shortly after, um, I did that, then she did, uh, move to California And that's where we um, began our life. Well, we continued our life together, but we were a couple by then.
1: Thank you for listening to part one of episode one of the Other Chair podcast. If you, like us, have not yet had enough of this conversation with Gary Friedman, you are in luck. Listen to part two of episode one. Until next time, you can find us on our website, www.understandinginconflict.org. And you can also find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Take care.